Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. I said this first service, but Brian, happy Father's Day. Brian, who's leading worship this morning, grateful for you. We've been friends for 25 years, and 25 years ago, if you'd have told me Brian's going to have six kids, I would have, I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> but uh, good on you, Brian. <laughs> um. Also, happy Father's Day to my dad. I'm grateful for my dad. Um, I hope that me preaching this morning is gift enough because that's all you're getting. Um, when I was a senior in high school, my day ended like this. I had choir fifth period, so after lunch, choir, which I was heavily invested in, and then Spanish, and then tennis, where I was heavily invested. So I spent a lot of time and energy on choir and tennis, Spanish, not so much. So when it came to finals, um, my Spanish final was to give like a five-minute speech in Spanish on how to do something. And I'd just come out of choir, so I was like, well, okay, I'll give a five-minute speech on how to sing, um, which is great, except... I didn't prepare for this speech, so I stood up to give the speech, and I basically forgot all of the Spanish that I knew. I forgot how to conjugate verbs. I forgot how to, you know, say words. Um, so I gave, I stood up there, and the only form of the verb that I could remember was the infinitive, the to be form, the to form. So I got up there and said, instead of saying, like, I take a deep breath in order to sing, I said, like, to take a deep breath. It's like, it didn't make any sense. And rightly, I failed my Spanish final. I had a ton of shame over that for a long time. And not, it wasn't just associated with the fact of failure, although that uh, was part of it. But part of it was that I felt like I had let down this community of people that I had spent several years caring about and working with. And um, so I had let these people down, my, my fellow students and my teachers who had worked hard uh, for me, and I had not worked hard for them. Shame is this emotion. In our culture, we feel it as an emotion. It's very personal and individual and internal to us. Um, but in other cultures, well, first off, even in our culture, shame has this communal element, right, where I feel shame partly because of how I've related or failed to relate well to other people. Other cultures, though, see shame very differently. Honor-shame honor cultures, for example, see shame as primarily a failure to treat the community well, or, or you take shame personally because you have somehow shamed the whole community. So 
For us, shame is very personal. For other cultures, shame is very communal. Interestingly, the gospel, we see the gospel similarly. The gospel for us is typically about having my sins, personal sins forgiven, my guilt relieved, and my sins forgiven. Whereas in other cultures, the gospel is more communal. So we're going to get into both shame and the gospel and the relationship between shame, gospel, and community around all of that today. In our passage today, Paul is telling Timothy to not be ashamed of the gospel, to suffer with the gospel, and he tells him the gospel, he explains his gospel, so that Timothy will know and see again that the gospel invites all of God's people to live as a Jesus community, ready to suffer without shame. Let's pray and then dive into this passage. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you this morning. We thank you that you invite us into your community of love. Uh, You're not ashamed of us. In fact, you invite us in. You sent your Son, Father, to Jesus to suffer for us, to suffer with us, so that you could invite us in and, and make us a part of the community of love that you have established. We give you praise, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we pray that you would, by your work this morning, through your word, that you would shape us, change us, challenge us, and grow us up to be more like Jesus. We love you and praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Just a reminder that we started Second Timothy last week. Second Timothy, so big picture, Second Timothy. Paul is coming to the end of his life, and he knows it. He's in a Roman prison about to die. He's handing his ministry off to Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, okay, you have been empowered by God to go and do this work that I have been called to. You have also been called to something really, really similar. You are going to take this mission to the world, on mission for the sake of the world. But Timothy needs some encouragement. He's kind of a timid dude, uh, and he needs encouraging. So last week, we saw how Paul invited Timothy to find his identity by remembering God's promises, remembering his heritage of faith, and remembering the mission and the power that God had given to Timothy. This week, Paul is reminding Timothy of the gospel message and inviting him not to be ashamed of the gospel, but to suffer with the gospel. The outline of this passage is interesting. It's, it's chiasmic, we call it. It's a chiasm where the beginning and the end are mirrors of each other, Then the next part and the almost end are mirrors of each other. And the middle is what that's all pointing to. So this is um, emphasizing the middle. We might call it a gospel sandwich, where Paul's commands to Timothy in verse 8 and Paul's example in verses 11 and 12 are the bread, but the meat, the substance, is the gospel message itself in verses 9 and 10. So get ready for some sandwich eating this morning. It's uh, healthy Gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free, vegan, all that stuff. Uh, But it will be good eating and life-giving. Again, it begins with two commands in verse 8. Don't be ashamed and suffer with. It's followed by the gospel in verses 9 and 10. And then 11 and 12 are Paul's personal account of being called, suffering, and feeling no shame. So we're going to start with the shamed piece. We're going to work our way inwards towards the gospel this morning. So don't be ashamed, Paul tells Timothy. Verse 8, 
Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. We're going to start there. A couple of background things. First, Paul is writing not in um, a modern Western culture. He's writing in an honor-shame culture where honor and shame function as kind of uh, a, a way of finding value in the world. So, and that's, again, communal. For us, uh, we find our value through guilt or innocence, something like that, or maybe success or failure, something like that, and it's individual, primarily. For them, honor, shame, meant you brought shame on your family or your community or whatever based on if you did shameful things, if you did things that brought shame to the community. So, like, dying in a, uh, as a criminal would bring shame to the whole community. Everybody who joins with you would be shamed by your shame. And they'd be honored if you won some great victory in battle or something. Then everybody in your community would be honored by your honor. Okay, so that's just background. Another piece of background on kind of the translation work that uh, has been done on this verse. Don't be ashamed. And most of the translations say something like, of the testimony about our Lord, or uh, of testifying about our Lord, something like that. And that's fine. That's a helpful translation. Uh, it's not the only thing that one might say about this, these couple of, of words in Greek. The word testimony there is the word marturion, which is the same word where we get our word martyrdom. Not like and so this, he's not talking about like religious testimony or legal courtroom testimony. He's talking about a life lived in testimony to what one believes. And when he's talking about the testimony of our Lord, he's saying Jesus lived and died in order to show us who he is and who God is. You, and again, a lot of the translations say about our Lord. The word is actually of our Lord, and of can mean lots of things. It might mean about but it might mean that this is our Lord's testimony. So, or, or again, our Lord's martyrdom. I think that's the most helpful for me. Don't be ashamed of the martyrdom of our Lord. Also, don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. By the way, that's why Timothy would be ashamed, right? He's not ashamed because Jesus said some stuff or some other people said some stuff about Jesus. He's ashamed that Jesus, or he might be ashamed because Jesus died as a criminal on a Roman cross. That's the reason for the command, don't be ashamed. It's because he might be ashamed. This is the kind of thing that's shameful in Roman culture. Dying on a Roman cross? Anybody associated with Jesus is shamed by their association with him because he died as a criminal. Paul, don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. So Paul is saying, I'm the prisoner of the guy who died on a Roman cross. Paul's identifying himself with Jesus and saying, yeah, I bear the same shame in this culture that Jesus does. And Paul's saying, you also can bear that shame with us. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of following a crucified master. Or don't be ashamed of me being a prisoner because of a crucified master. Jesus and Paul have brought dishonor to everyone who associates with them. In the kingdom honor system, though, so there's a different, that's the Roman system. Jesus and Paul are shameful. In the kingdom honor system, 
Suffering with and for someone is honorable in itself. Suffering for the sake of another person brings one honor in the kingdom of God system. Because that's who our king is. We bring honor to our Lord when we suffer for the sake of the community, when we seek to honor the name of God, when we seek to honor the kingdom of God. It's a different system than the honor system of Rome. So Paul's inviting Timothy, which one are you going to choose? Which system are you going to go with? Are you going to go with the Roman system? Or are you going to choose to identify with the kingdom of God and identify with them in such a way that you're not ashamed of the martyrdom of our Lord or of me, his prisoner? Faithfulness to God is not a shameful thing, Paul's suggesting. Translating that to us today, we don't really have an honor-shame system in the same way in, in uh, American, modern American culture. There are lots of cultures around the world that do have an honor-shame system. Ours is a little different. We tend to focus on guilt, innocence, or maybe success or failure. Success-failure, I think, was helpful for me in thinking through how to translate into our, uh, our culture today in the sense that Success looks a lot like honor did for them. Like you can promote yourself if you're successful. It's really hard to do that if you're a failure or if you fail, right? And we talk about, what's interesting is in the church even, we talk about we don't really buy into the success model of our culture. Instead, we want to be faithful. That's what we say. But it's interesting when I do ministry events or um, other kinds of things, the, the questions that I get asked are still primarily how many people showed up, how much money did you make, did you make or, or lose. We, we still identify quantifiable measures of success as the means by which we place value on a, a ministry event. So not was it faithful, but how many people showed up. Not was God there in some meaningful way, but did you make the money that you hope to make? That's how we still too easily measure success. By the measures of success and failure, by the way, Jesus and Paul were complete failures. Jesus had a three-year ministry that ended in his crucifixion. Paul got to at least travel a little bit. Other than that, he was in and out of prison. Successful? Not by those measures. Too easily, I get the idea that I'm a failure, and maybe you have this experience too, feeling like a failure sometimes. It's too easy for us to do that, especially when I compare myself to others. Comparison always leads to this idea that I'm somehow a failure. Uh, partly for, for a couple reasons. One, there's always somebody who's more successful than I am. I can never be a success if I'm choosing this measure of success. But two, Success and failure is an especially bad way of valuing your walk with Jesus. Again, Jesus chose failure. He chose a way of life that he knew was going to end in his crucifixion. He chose failure. Success is an opposite way of valuing success. Success is an opposite way of placing value to faithfulness. Faithfulness is a completely different system. So 
think about and choose to associate with kingdom values, not success or failure, but with faithfulness. How do I, for example, um, choose, what kinds of people do I choose to follow? Do I choose to follow, follow people because they're successful or because they're faithful? What kinds of uh, stories do I read or watch? And what kind of people do I associate myself with in those stories? Do I find and seek out successful people or faithful ones? What kind of people do I choose to model my own life after? Successful people or faithful people? Friday night, we, I was out with some friends downtown and we were having a conversation about parenting. Uh, if you know parenting, if you've done it, it's a fun thing to do, you know. But parenting, there's a lot of pressure for success and to have your kids be successful. Tons of pressure. Get into the right schools, uh, be in the right programs, do the right sports, do the right sports so that eventually you can get into the right schools, get into colleges, get scholarships. All of, there's all of this pressure around parenting. Uh, especially we've seen this with sports in, in, in our own uh, family where, you know, if you're not in the right sports, on the right sports team, by the time your kid's about five, it's too late. Like, you're never going to get them a scholarship if they're not onto the right program by four or five. So Grace and I have really genuinely wrestled with this, especially when it comes to um, Adaliah, our middle one, who's very athletic and could do all kinds of sports. And she's going to turn eight this week, and we haven't got her into the right programs. Like, it's already too late. We've already failed our child. Uh, We've blown up our parenting. But those of us who are parents are training our kids to value certain kinds of things and to honor certain communities and be ashamed of other communities. So the question that I have for us is, are we training them to value the gospel and the freedom that comes in Jesus Or are we training them to value success in the eyes of the world and to give in to that pressure for success? What are we doing? How are we training our kids? Paul says in verse 12, I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. I'm not ashamed. And Paul is consistent throughout his letters with what he's ashamed of and what he's not ashamed of. The things he chooses to honor and the things he chooses to be ashamed about. He consistently gives honor to the gospel and to the things that the culture shames. A couple other places we could point to, there's a bunch, but a couple other places we could point to are Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This story of Jesus going to the cross for us, I'm not ashamed of that. Because that is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. Another place I'd like to take us is 1 Corinthians 1, where the gospel of Jesus, God's purpose in the gospel and choosing the people that God chooses is to shame the strong and the wise. God intends purposefully to shame the strong and the wise and to lift up and honor the weak despised, oppressed things of the world. He associates himself, Jesus does, with the weak and despised and shames the strong. So what are we supposed to do? We're not to be ashamed of the gospel. What are we to do instead? Verse 8. 
Don't be ashamed of the testimony, the, the martyrdom of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering with the gospel, relying on the power of God. So again, suffering with. Jesus suffers. Paul suffers. And Paul is inviting Timothy to suffer. But not just suffer. The word, the Greek word there is soon kakopatheson, which means suffer evil with. Not just suffer, but suffer the evils of the world. Suffer those with us and with the gospel. Suffer with. By the way, suffering with is the opposite of shame, right? Shame is choosing to dissociate in this honor-shame system. It's choosing to say, no, I don't take your shame. I dissociate myself from you because you are shameful to me. The opposite of that is to suffer with, to take on somebody's shame. To go into their shame, their place of pain, and say, I'm with you in that. Thank God Jesus suffers with us. He took on our shame when we were still sinners, enemies of God. He took our shame on himself, suffered with and for us that we might be saved. Praise God. So how can we suffer with the gospel now? Lots, lots of op- options here. I want to present a few. One is we can choose the kind of life that leads to failure. Choose to live the kind of life that associates with the weak, despised, oppressed people of the world. Countercultural living situations, choosing not to value money, choosing not to value success, choosing to associate with the oppressed, with outsiders, with those who are different and uncomfortable to us. We can suffer with the gospel by embracing failure, not seeking after failure, that's a little different, but embracing failure. When failure comes, it's an opportunity for God to do something amazing. That is especially hard for us in this culture. It's really hard for me to do. Again, like who would seek that for yourself or for your kids as we just talked about? But again, Jesus chose to suffer with us. Paul suffers with Jesus. And Paul invites Timothy and us to suffer with. Another couple of examples for how we might suffer with the gospel. One is to suffer with the persecuted sisters and brothers around the world. So Christians are persecuted in lots of places. Uh, We have the opportunity in various ways through prayer, through visits, through financial and other resources to share our resources and suffer with our sisters and brothers. We can suffer with our sisters and brothers who are in prison. Another way, which maybe is less obvious but equally helpful, is suffering with our neighbors who don't yet know Jesus. Suffer with our neighbors when they suffer. One example of this that I saw recently, again, so Friday night, we're downtown with friends. I don't know if you knew what was happening Friday night downtown, but it was a huge LGBTQ LGBTQ plus um, pride rally downtown. And we walked by and somebody in our group, and I don't remember who it was. I, I told you last week I have a bad memory. Somebody in our group was remembering a story of a a guy who went to one of these rallies with a shirt that said, free dad hugs. He went and just gave hugs to people. Grace is saying that it was her who remembered the story, so I'm sorry, Grace. He went around and just gave hugs. 
And the hugs that he got back from people who have lost their families or who remove themselves from their families or who are shamed by their families, uh, he just, people were weeping on his shoulder because of the pain that they've experienced. That's an example to me, and again, on Father's Day, that's a great kind of example to me, of suffering with people in pain. Lots of us have all kinds of pain. A lot of people in the LGBT plus community have lots of pain, especially around their parents. And that's a great opportunity for us as the church to suffer with our neighbors who don't yet know Jesus. I think also of uh, pregnant moms. Um, I'm, on, uh, I, I'm associated with PATH Pregnancy Clinic, and that's another opportunity for us to uh, serve people who might be suffering. Pregnant moms um, that we deal with at PATH, that we serve at PATH, they're in the middle of trying to figure out what am I going to do? Like pregnancy is now a kind of pain to them. And they're suffering with trying to figure out, do I abort this child? Do I carry this child? Do I give this child up for adoption? That's a hard place to be. And then we want to give support to and serve and suffer with those moms who choose to keep their babies because that's a long road of work, right? To carry a child and to raise it. We want to suffer with those who give their children up for adoption because that's also a, a pain and can be painful. And then those who uh, choose to give, uh, choose to abort their babies, that's going to lead to pain and mourning. And we want to suffer with them as well. That brings up for me, we don't have to agree with someone's actions or beliefs to suffer with them. Thank God. Because if you had to agree with someone to suffer with them, Jesus never would have suffered with and for us. We're all saved by someone choosing to suffer with us despite our actions, beliefs that were wrong. We don't have to agree with someone. We can suffer with them because Jesus has suffered with us. Again, 12, uh, verse 12. Because of all this, because of the gospel, I suffer these things. These things meaning his chains and his coming death. Paul tells us, I suffer with and like Jesus suffered. There's a whole bunch of um, examples of Paul talking about his own suffering throughout his letters. I want to point to a couple because, again, his idea of suffering is consistent throughout his ministry. If you remember Acts 9, we just studied this uh, a couple of months ago. Acts 9, where when God calls Paul, he sends Ananias to commission him, and he says, go and tell him how much he's going to suffer for my sake. This is the content of Paul's ministry. This is Paul's ministry, is suffering. And again, he talks about it in 2 Corinthians, especially in chapter 12, where he says, I'm going to boast, if I'm going to boast, if I'm going to give honor to something, here's what I'm going to boast about. Here's what I'm going to give honor to. Weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, difficulties, because God's grace is sufficient for me and his power is perfected in weakness. 
the content of Paul's ministry is his suffering. Because it gives God an opportunity to break through in a way that when we're successful, we, he just doesn't have an, a, a way to break through in the same way. Our cracks, our weaknesses, show forth the glory of God in a way that our success does not. Okay, so don't be ashamed of the gospel. Suffer with the gospel. Here's the gospel as Paul presents it. Verses 9 and 10. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Amen. I find this gospel presentation interesting. There's no mention of sin. In fact, there's no mention really of sin in the book of 2 Timothy at all. There's one time where he uses the word, but he's talking about people who are weighed down by sin. It's not really a, um, a gospel or theological context. The good news of the gospel isn't only about Jesus overcoming sin. That's an important implication of the gospel. There's a lot more one might say about the gospel. Here's why I think that, and I'm going to make a case here. First, the word gospel. It means good news, but it's not like good news like here's the news of the day or here's a theological proposition that you might believe. The gospel, the word gospel in its ancient context means good news of some victory in battle or good news of a king becoming king. So like when Nero was crowned the Roman emperor, that there was the gospel of Nero's reign went out to the Roman Empire. By the way, it wasn't, it wasn't good news. Rome, Nero's reign was not, not good news, just in case you're concerned or confused. But a herald carrying news of a victory in battle or the beginning of the reign of a new king, that, that is what is meant by gospel. Jesus, of course, fulfills both of those. He has defeated death and sin and evil. And he's become the king of life, the king of righteousness. So the gospel of Jesus is the fact that he has defeated death and he is king. That has all kinds of implications about, you know, everything. He is the king of creation. He's the king over all of it. That means he loves it and wants to restore it. He wants to make it good. He's the king over sin and death. Yes, he has uh, defeated sin, defeated death, and he invites us to new life and to live lives of righteousness. The gospel of Jesus is about defeating the power of death and establishing his reign of life. And the gospel, as you can see in verse 9, the gospel is about God in action. Who does all of the doing in verse 9? If you remember, it's God. God saved us. God called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works. We couldn't have ever done it ourselves. It's all about him. Like, as though it would be possible for us to, like, defeat death and overthrow this kingdom. Like, what means would we have of even doing that, right? That has to be the work of God. That can only be his work. The heart of his, of his message here is that God has abolished death and established life in Jesus. The rebel death 
and the rebellious kingdom of death have been destroyed. They've been abolished. Death isn't gone, right? It's like winter when we get to spring. There's still frosty mornings. Death isn't done, but life is clearly winning in the kingdom of God. Life is taking over. So we don't have to fear death anymore. We don't have to place value on our comfort and safety in the same way that we would if death really were the the great enemy. We would have to protect ourselves from death all the time. We don't have to do that because death isn't this great enemy. Death will still come. We will still die. But death is just a stepping stone. God is going to raise us to new life, and we will have a greater experience in new life, resurrected life, than we do now. We think of our sister Joan Calhoun, who died this week, went to her death with hope and grace, despite her pain and suffering. Her life and death, of course, is a great example to us of what death can look like. She did not fear death. She was ready to go be with Jesus. So we thank God for her life and death. But the fact that death has been abolished means that Jesus has exposed the lie that violence and inflicting death on others is a way to bring healing and life. The culture and even sometimes the church uh, is ready to sanctify or bless death, violence, bringing violence against others. Instead of that, Paul is calling us to suffer with Jesus and Paul and the martyrs of the church. That's a way of beating back death. That's the way of exposing death as a rebel and as a lie. But we live in a culture that still believes all the lies about death. That death is the most terrifying thing we can experience. And so we remove death from ourselves. That death is the worst thing that could happen to a person. And so we need to do anything and everything we can to protect ourselves from death. We believe the lie that failing to prevent death is shameful to us and to our community. And so we make choices to use use the tools of death in order to move the possibility of death from our community to those other communities out there, apart from me, far away. Keep it away. To paraphrase William Cavanaugh, theologian, on death, he says, We're so thankful that we're not absolutist crazies like those Islamist fundamentalists or those violent nationalists, or those radical anarchists, or those extreme socialists, or those racists over there. They're so crazy that they make us bomb them to death to get rid of their violence. Do you hear the lie repeated? We can't use death to bring life. That's not the way it works. Death brings death. But we, we justify our own use of the tools of death because... We want to keep death away from us, separate ourselves from it. 99% of the people who believe the lie of death believe that every time they are using it, using the tools of death, they're justified because of the other people's extreme evil. The Leninists in in, uh, Russia's history believed in the extreme evil of the Tsarists and the capitalists. The Nazis believed in the so-called evil of the Jews. The Islamists believe in the perversion of the West. Americans also believe in the evil of others. And so we use violence to try and bring life. It doesn't work that way. That's not the way death works. Death brings death. It doesn't bring life. 
Jesus gives us another way. By defeating death, he invites us into something else. We don't inflict death on others because the reign of the kingdom of death is over. Instead, we suffer with others to bring life the way he did for us. He's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He's given us life now in Christ and he's given us eternal life after death. Resurrection is part of our expectation. Death is not the end. We are going to be raised to new life in him. We live in the kingdom of life now. So we don't need to protect ourselves from death. Instead, we point out where life is happening in new babies, whether they're wanted or unwanted, in criminals being restored and rehabilitated, in people finding healing from mental, physical, and emotional disease and abuse, in healing from trauma, in victims and survivors finding wholeness, in lost sinners submitting ourselves to Jesus. Another point about death is that when we remove death from us, we also remove the possibility of resurrection, right? Resurrection requires death. You don't get resurrection without first dying. So so self-protection, protecting ourselves from death, is a kind of insulation that also keeps us from resurrection. Sarah Bareilles is a songwriter that Grace and I like, and I think she does a nice job. She's not talking about Jesus here primarily, although she is quoting scripture. But she says, What you didn't do to bury me, but you didn't know I was a seed. You don't scare me. I'm of the earth. I'm so tired of your empire. Blind men only set the world on fire. Sad you can't see it. You brought the flame. Here comes the phoenix. Do you see resurrection there? I'm a seed. You might try to bury me, but I'm going to sprout to new life. And I'm a phoenix. You might bring fire to try and destroy me, but I'm going to rise from the ashes. This is the way Jesus works in the world. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, our bodies are seeds sown in dishonor but raised up in glory. Or as Jesus himself says in John 12, speaking about himself and what he's calling us to, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it. For eternal life. We live in a kingdom of healing and life and immortality. We have the chances to allow God to restore, to resurrect. When we suffer with others, we reveal the truth about the world, that suffering is not the final story on creation, that God is making things new in us and in all of creation, that life is breaking out all over the place because God makes dead things and dead people come to life. Amen? So he calls us not to be ashamed of the martyrdom of our Lord, but to suffer with the gospel. We're invited into being not ashamed of those who suffer, but to finding ways to suffer with them by the power of God. God is inviting all of us today to move from the defeated kingdom of death to his kingdom of life. And if you don't know the gospel, That's one version of it. There's more to say, but Jesus has come. He has defeated death and he is raising us to new life by his power. Praise God. Jesus was not ashamed of us, our failures, our weakness, our sin, our suffering, or our death. 
Instead, he who was God himself suffered with us, displaying the character of the God who is for us and not against us. He took the form of of a servant, and in the end, his suffering defeats the power of the kingdom of death and makes his kingdom of life and grace and beauty and truth available to us. What a wonderful God we serve. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you as Lord and King. You are ruling today. You are Lord over creation, and we give you thanks and praise. Thank you, and we praise you that you have defeated the power of death. We don't need to be ashamed of suffering or death, but you invite us to suffer with those who suffer, to suffer with you as our Lord. Continue to grow us up and continue to, by your Spirit, make us new. Bring your resurrection life in and through us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.